Explore the depths of your curiosity with aerospace engineer John Connolly, Columbia Space Center's Benjamin Dickow, and CEO of Heavy Metal Magazine, Matthew Medney, as they bring scientists, engineers, and authors on a journey of discovery. This is putting the science in science fiction, where fiction and science collide. What's up, science fans? This is putting the science science fiction. I'm Matt Medney, and I have John Connolly here with me today. We're going to do a duo um, recording. Ben is off saving the world on interplanetary missions, and he'll be back next week. Um, But, you know, right now, let's talk about John's daring promotion. Um, You know, he was once just a a wee bit lad working in aerospace engineering and then he decides to build a testing apparatus that spans three plus years of work and two planets and now there's a working helicopter on mars and because of that john has gone an incredible promotion and whether or not uh this is the title in which he will go with this is the title that we will be using (laughs) Uh, at least internally here at Putting the Science Science Fiction, and most likely externally everywhere else as well. But John is now the celestial ground support lead for the Deep Space Division. How does that feel, John? It feels fantastic. And furthermore, I was going to actually, I wanted to compound on that and say that I ran it by uh, the person who, <laughs> who, uh, whose position I'm stepping into, and he gave it a thumbs up. Yes! Yes! That's what I'm talking about. So that is now your official title. Not only do I feel good about creating a title for an official position at an official capacity for Lockheed, I also feel honored that you have a title that you know, rivals any title we've ever put together for Beyond Kuiper. I mean, it, it's a title that I'll have on my personal business cards. Um, as I say, the, the, the true formal title is, it's, it's too bland. It's so bland, it's fictitious. We're just going to go with a much, a much better iteration. If it's a title that you told me earlier, there's a fundamental oxymoron in the title. You cannot have ground support in deep space. Without a denoting adjective to what the ground support is, that is an oxymoron because there is no ground in deep space. Okay. Mechanical ground support for the deep space division. And so what that means is all of the actual, all the, so commonly JPL, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, division, semi quasi independent division of NASA, which I came to learn very recently. So it's not, like it doesn't exist like uh, Johnson Space Center or Kennedy Space Center or Goddard. Uh, you know, its affiliation is with um, Caltech there in Pasadena. And so there's a long, there's this partnership that exists commonly between Lockheed and JPL is that JPL is designing this spacecraft and many times they are building components of it or there are incredibly expensive pieces of instrumentation that take a really long time to get there and everything comes to Lockheed comes to this campus here in Littleton and we do full integration 
full buildup of it piece by piece and all of the testing and we build all of the aero shells in case if it's if it's going into mars or if it's going into somewhere with an atmosphere you know the, the heat shield and at this point yeah i mean just that that's the nature of the job is even though they've designed this wonderful piece of instrumentation that is designed for the vacuum of space or the surface of another planet it's incredibly difficult to put together and usually very delicate, very, I mean, you have to take a tremendous precautions in terms of contamination, especially if it has incredibly sensitive equipment or if it's going to another planet. I know Mars 2020, the rover had to be inside a 10,000 particulate size clean room, which is a higher level than the clean room that I had to be in for Lucy because it's a interplan interplanetary deep space probe, but it's not expecting to enter anyone's atmosphere. So we're not worried about contamination. But what if it did go into an atmosphere? I mean, probably nothing. Who's <laughs> Okay. Whose atmosphere? Uh, which is which atmosphere? You know, no, Jupiter, Saturn? Yeah, yeah, no, no, T-shirt, t, -shirt, t -shirt. Um, <laughs> But I guess I guess that's a, a good lead-in to what I wanted to talk about today, which is the reality of implementation of high-concept science fiction, you know, activities in real life. And what I mean by that is you see in a movie, you know, a concept to reality, and, you know, it usually happens relatively quickly because it's a movie – but like, you know, everything from, you know, Armageddon and throw in some people who are miners up on an asteroid within three weeks to, you know, the the science of um, of uh, Ad Astra, which I know is your favorite science in the world, to the science of Kuiper and everything in between and, and, and the reality of some of the nodes that are pushed in those fictions and how that would actually work in actuality. So let's start with the fun one, which is Armageddon, because I think that's a great baseline for people. So, you know, Neil deGrasse and Michio Kaku and Bill Nye have all been very vocal about if a world-ending asteroid came towards Earth, we would have to push it off course, because if we exploded it, it would just rain fire on the planet, right? So so talk me through... I agree. I agree with that. Yeah, so, so talk me through the thought process of Armageddon. Was that solely for Bruce Willis to blow up an asteroid? Or was there maybe some science in how far away it was when they were on it? First of all, the shuttle crafts themselves, having two shuttles that were ready... That wasn't that crazy. They refueled at a station in that was in low Earth orbit. You know, there's the crazy cosmonaut. Everything's breaking down. It's playing into that stereotype about Mir being a dump. And then they're off, and they're off to the moon, and they're doing this gravity assist to go around the moon and then boost around. So they're coming back towards the asteroid because they're not going to be able to stop directly as you know. Asteroids coming, this giant asteroid's coming this way. Our ship is going towards it. You'd have to burn an incredible delta V. It's easier to 
get all the way to the moon, burn around it, and come back. So that part, up to that part, is actually not too crazy. How wow. the micro, how, how the micro, but then at that point, everything instantly breaks down. In terms of the <laughs> amount of fuel mass that they would need to, then, to, to make that burn to catch up to then slow down again, it, um, I mean, surviving that landing, I mean, ships don't, our ships are made of incredibly thin materials to have the least amount of mass possible. So you can move them the greatest efficiency. They're like an airplane. You know, when an airplane hits something, it doesn't rigidly survive it. It just tears, shears into pieces. Uh, I mean, our spacecraft wouldn't be much different. And then there's the <laughs> microgravity. And then... And what about putting a nuke in the middle of an asteroid? Does that work? It's a terrible idea. <laughs> also, just off of the sheer mass. I mean, even I honestly don't know... I mean, that was that was a milky megaton nuclear warhead. Pro I mean, it would have shattered it. It certainly would not have broken it into two pieces. No. That's the uh, that's the most ludicrous thing. It's just like, oh, it cleaved down the middle, and it happened to be on a good plane that it just went like, wee, right now, across the earth perfectly. Not now, is there any <laughs> now outside of those those pieces? Was there any? misconceptions of how a nuke would explode in the vacuum of space because don't you need oxygen no because in that instance it is buried down below so all of the nukes energy is transferring directly into the rock surrounding it so in that case it's it's vaporizing that rock turning it so putting a deep in the asteroid was actually scientifically accurate in theory to what you like Putting it just on the surface would have been ridiculous. Yeah, exactly, and not just for the firecracker analogy, because that's not really because it would have been to your point a nuke that was just on the surface, which would have radiated. It, it would have been half gamma radiation going towards space, hitting nothing, and then it would have been the other half going into the rock, but the explosion was occurring outside, so it still would only remain on the periphery of it, it would go in a certain distance, but you don't have any, there's no shock wave that's being carried. So in that respect, it's not a good, you know, the idea of using a, a nuke to push off, uh, which is like what project Orion was, is a nuke system propulsion system. I mean, you, you're essentially trying to transfer light in a vacuum we're trying to transfer light momentum into propulsion which is not an efficient activity but yes if you put the the nuke inside of the rock you have an expanding ball of plasma that wants to go somewhere so there's a tremendous amount of pressure and if it was a big enough nuke to crack it then it's gonna go but certainly not just like oh two pieces yeah it would have rained fire right oh it would have it would have been the most unholy meteor storm, which would have still resulted in a nuclear winter. Um, all right, so let, let's move on to our second one, which is the Martian. Talk to me about the uh, the gravitational uh, whip that um, that uh, Childish Gambino came up with for getting, I think, whatever it's called, the Pegasus or whatever, back to Mars to get water. The Hermes. The Hermes, yes. Um, what, how realistic was that mathematical maneuver? 
Oh, uh, it's, I mean, I, I want to state that I personally have not investigated the math of the Martian, but in, in terms of the type of engines that the Hermes is spec'd with, which are a type of nuclear thermal rocket that uses nuclear material to nuclear fission to superheat plasma and then be able to inject propellant into very high energy plasma that's caused by this nuclear reaction and you get a higher ISP or a higher specific impulse, which means a more efficient rocket. Uh, so using an intensely close gravitational slingshot of the earth to basically just, you know, instead of aborting, cause, cause, okay. You know, depending on where Mars was in the solar system, they're heading back to earth from Mars. If they're going to go to Mars, they need to either turn back the other way immediately based on where it is because they're not waiting for the convenient time when earth and mars are aligned again so they needed the and then we lead into the package that they needed because they needed to resupply but they wouldn't be able to stop and so they needed a rocket uh with a certain i believe it was a certain velocity capability it might have also been just simply the availability just the availability of a rocket uh, but they needed to collaborate with the Chinese government on it. And that's often what people and peers of science have said is the least conceivable portion of the Martian. <laughs> <laughs> so talk me through that. So if this was reality and, and the U.S. had a spaceship and we left a man on Mars and we needed inter-country support, would would it be impossible for that to have happened? I I think that even if the sentiment was there, the logistics and the bureaucracy would it would just never happen. It would be this whole international negotiation, and they'd make a huge deal out of it, and we'd have to make some sort of crazy negotiations. I mean, yeah, uh, yes. On one hand. And I'm saying that also because I'm not saying that because I think that America would be altruistic and that China would not. And if the roles are reversed, that America would lend out a helping hand to do that. I don't think it would. I mean, I think that a lot or of Or there would be a high price, right? Or I think that simply they would look at logistics and say there's absolutely no way that we're risking the Hermes on another voyage and the same batch of astronauts being subjected to another however many months, if not years of radiation in deep space, uh, that that's something that doesn't get addressed. It's certain, well, doesn't get addressed to that degree in the film, but you know, that would be a big danger. Uh, that would be the biggest danger of doing that mission again. Just the, the duration of being away from shielding as well as microgravity because they're not staying in the gravitational zones the entire time. Wouldn't there be like a real, in reality, right? If we really need the Chinese's help, it would, it would just be that it would be, you know, 4D chess, right? We would have to give them something of immense value, right? Exactly. Maybe. And they, and they do that in the Martian. They give the seats on the Hermes. They, they now have it as a joint mission between the countries, the, the next Mars 
group that goes. So maybe it was a permanent, it might've been a permanent situation. Maybe it was just for a mission. Uh, but I think that also there's the reality that NASA as well as China's own space agency would take a risk assessment and say, is it really, is the risk worth it to send that many people and that resource all the way back across space for one person? Oh, wow. I see what you're saying. You're saying that there yeah, because the crew, because the crew basically mutant. So the, in that case, in the case of the Martian, the crew basically mutant us because NASA would not have done it. You know, I think that, and I think the crew would have done that with or without, they would have, for, I mean, they did force NASA's hand. Uh, sure. Because on the ground, in terms of assets, absolutely not. I mean, that, you know, I try to, it's, it would be like sending an entire aircraft carrier to retrieve one, hu one soldier. Never leave a man behind though. True. But in that situation, there is no chance that you are going to lose the aircraft carrier. Not, in not even in terms of committing resources, but in the true risk of not necessarily in human lives, but in terms of uh, assets. Hmm. Well, it's, it's interesting. And this is like, you know, what I always find, you know, flaws in some of these movies where, you know, even with the Abrams Star Trek. There are so many blatant plot holes just infuriate me. Like for instance, you know, the, 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 the record center blows up and every high commander goes into a room that's in a glass tower. Yeah, right. They are going into a bunker that is locked and sealed, just like the president would go into a bunker that is locked and sealed by tons of metals. Like, uh, uh, just so ridiculous. That's why I love, and am I allowed to spoil Red Rising as a preface here, or is that, would that be rude? Please. No, do it. The, the conclusion of the trilogy of Red Rising takes place in the bunker that's deep underneath Luna inside the moon, because that's where the Empress is, and that's where our main character, main antagonist, you know, the, like basically the 12 most relevant people, and it comes down to all of them in a room, and then everything goes sideways, and not a giant space battle. Because exactly to your point, they're not going to be anywhere near, especially then at that time, where, okay, you don't have assassin drones. I, I actually feel that um, looping tangent. Wow, a little bit, I didn't even think of I, that. That's so true. Where are the where are the drones? Well, I give credit a little bit here to Star Wars in Episode Two when they're trying to assassinate Amidala all the time, and that's that's kind of something. Even us in Kuiper, you know, we are when we've been thinking about writing something like that. How it you know in some ways it would be so easy to kill each other with insane galactic technology, right? Like you've got to be able to, th if you have enough resources, you could throw that at somebody from a distance all the time, but at the same time, they could throw it right back at you. So, you know, does, does that sort of technological ramp up mean that it happens more frequently, less frequently? It's just the same. doesn't matter what Eon, just different Eon or, you know, different weapons, same game. Like Dune, they're getting assass they're having getting assassination attempts all the time, and it, it's I see oh, that. Oh, true. In, 
I see that in a lot of older science fiction when it's talking about leadership and what's happening to it. But then again, in Red Rising, that was also something that was happening. But uh, also very much in Edgar Rice Burroughs, um, which, you know, is, is essentially fantasy, but also the idea True. of being sent out of the world, but but also the idea that assassination possibilities were happening all the time, and you know, there's people coming in and, and flying ships to your you know to your high palace where you're sleeping. Just back to your point of a glass tower where you're hanging out. I don't know. Reality is just not so. So it, it's tough. It's, 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 but, I think it's but, but you're murdering. Right. No, no. But 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 look, go back a second because you you brought up a point I didn't even think of. But you're you're hundred percent right. There is no way on God's green earth or this cosmic sea that there's going to be a ship that can go at warp 9.2 and there are not going to be murder drones protecting every member of the high council if they're in a glass windowed room. Or personal Such, shields. Oh, that's a glaring plot hole. I didn't even think of that one. I could buy this. I could buy instead of Khan showing up in that ship outside and shooting everybody he pulls off a digital mask that he was wearing it doesn't even do that at first he's already a guard that was escorting them into that room who's there guarding outside the door shoots the other one in the head comes in just starts shooting people maybe they eventually like someone eventually well, in that case he should have no, worn the face should have worn the face of kirk just freaking get in there he's wearing the face of kirk Kills a uh, pike, you know, injures Spock, and it's just like craziness. That's how that works. That's a great point. But no, they had to ruin it. Ugh. All right, let's continue on our journey through movies. Um, another another movie that has a lot of, you know, space flack, and we can have some fun with this, is Gravity. As we both know. There is fantastic errors in this movie. Let's start with the most fun one. How would Sandra Bullock's hair be so perfect in space, John? Some some claim static electricity. Others say it's the <laughs> conditioner. It's the particular voluminous conditioner she uses. Uh, is it, you know, what would be really interesting is when we see... Uh, you know, sometimes they've been able to film zero-G scenes using the vomit comment. But supposedly uh, Tom Cruise and some people are supposed to be going up uh, to the ISS on one of those Axiom modules, into one of those Axiom modules. They're going to use a SpaceX to ride up there. And that's the first stage, development stage of that Axiom rotating hotel that we saw that was claiming to begin construction in 2027 that we both called bull on. <laughs> that, that, uh, fantastic. So, so let's talk about the other part of the Gravity um, uh, movie that bothers me more than uh, the hair, which is that she uh, jettisons down to Earth crashes in the water and pops out of the capsule and starts walking for for all of our science 
on tours who are listening who don't understand why that is absurd. Mr. Scientist Connolly, can you please enlighten our listeners as to why you would not walk out of a capsule once you spend time in orbit? Uh, your inner ear is designed to comprehend a world in which there is an up and a down uh, and uses gravity to help align that. When it's lacking for long extended duration, you no longer have that same sense and so if you all don't have a sense of necessarily what up or down is, when you all of a sudden re-enter a gravity environment, your body doesn't understand to align your, your column, your center of gravity vertically underneath your feet, and you usually just collapse. <laughs> or you're, you're chilling there <laughs> waiting for a group of people to come pull you out of the capsule. <laughs> so when she pulled herself out of a capsule... Well, that, I mean, this is thing. Unlikely. Those people... Are, on um, the Hermes in the Martian, they they would just they would have to be talk about being shredded. They would have to get swole at the gym so many hours a day, eight, ten hours a day, every day to try to battle the microgravity effects. Is there in theory a pill of the future that could counter that? I mean, I think in the realm of possibility, absolutely. It, it's something that's poorly understood because we do have a, a limited scope of being able to study you know there's not that many test subjects uh, there's not that many have been up there for that duration uh, and also i think that it has so many effects for doing from the immune system to how bone growth versus decay occurs is it gravity or is it the cosmic rays no, it's gravity because these are even when they're in low Earth orbit and they're microgravity, these effects are happening. So there's so there's independently the effects of microgravity, which over a long duration are degrading your body. And then there's yes, if once we leave the Earth's magnetosphere, we're gonna have to do, contend with cosmic radiation, which means that we would need to significantly increase the radiation shielding of whatever ships that we would be traveling in. Or we would have to contend with, uh, I mean, ideally with shielding, uh, with the expectation that there could be a much greater chance of cancer down the road, hopefully much better radiation medication that the astronauts are probably be having to take on a continuous basis. And maybe wearing lead legitimately, like wearing some lead-lined extra stuff just on their body. Although that doesn't really, cosmic radiation is very, I, actually, I take that back. I, I walk that back. Lead is not going to work in that instance. So is there, is there, you know, like on the Enterprise, right, where, you know, obviously there's artificial gravity, and let's put aside the fact that we have no idea if that's even a possibility, but if there was artificial gravity, would that solve the issues in theory? Like, would would you be able to live in space if the spacefaring vessel you were on had arc grav without any of these, you know, issues that we find with microgravity and so on? You're just, are you just saying that if we could solve if the gravity issue wasn't an issue, would that solve all our problems? Yeah, effectively. It, 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 is, the, it is there other factors there that we're not taking into consideration or is it really just the gravity issue? Well, no, it's the, it's the radiation shielding issue. 
it's the gravity issue. It's the atmospheric composition. And, it, and to be clear, it's it's arc grav boots like what we do in Kuiper. Would that solve it, or is it, would there still be issues even there? No, you're talking about the ones that the crew have, the humans have. Exactly. Yeah, that, that's that's and for the record too. When people ask, yes, a magnetic boot would require that the floor be some type of ferrous material, meaning highly magnetic, a basis of either iron, nickel, or cobalt, which are significantly heavier than aluminum. But my interpretation of, I was say, my design of the Nomad included that there would be strategic plated regions along likely walking paths that they would be able to lock into with boots. And... So that's why not the, you know, only a tiny fraction of the total structure of the Nomad would have these highly ferrous areas where you could use the magnetic boots on. Um, because yes, in the ships of the Expanse, and I'm going to leave that up to the Epstein Drive and how awesome it is, they have a lot of steel in them. <laughs> yeah, so going back, but then to answer your question truthfully, no, that doesn't help us. It just helps us orient on a ship, but it doesn't give us gravity it doesn't give that force right yeah. so they still would need to do similar amounts of um of uh working out on a day-to-day -day basis to really make sure that they are um that they are um what's the word i'm looking for yeah that there's that, there's uh, that they are not deteriorating exactly and i mean that was something we even threw in kuiper that there is an old piece of technology called a resistor, which is a, a type of armored suit that you would wear that would provide tremendous, that weighed a lot and would provide tremendous resistance to your movements. So it would help you be able to just keep getting all that extra feeling and, and yes, yeah, as you said, prevent you from deteriorating over long durations. Fascinating. Mm -hmm. Now, let's. Let, let's finish this episode on, on obviously your favorite science in all of fiction, which is Ad Astra. You had such high hopes for this movie. I remember you talking to me about it before it came out. And then I remember the dismay and the solace and the horror in its appropriation of real science as foe. So why don't you walk through our audience how the science in Ad Astra would work in a realistic version of that happening in real life. Oh, so, so if, if everything realistically happened, how would it have gone? Exactly. Okay, so let's say, for starters, that there was a strong enough cosmic radiation blast that was emanating from the Lima project at the orbit of Neptune, that it was disrupting Earth in that way. Earth would be irradiated. But by the amount of radiation <laughs> to pull a plane out of the sky and an EMP, you know, that it had this EMP feel. And they were very vague about that. As well as the fact that radiation disperses at square of the distance, not increases. So by the time Brad Pitt got to anywhere near where the Lima project was, that would have been this almost star-like object that was blasting out radiation 
that would have fried him long before he got to it. And it wouldn't have been a pulse because if it was antimatter, it would have all just gone boom in one go. That's the thing, too, where he talks about, just like, oh, the antimatter reactor, it's like kind of f***ing up. It's like, no, an antimatter reactor is either functioning or you are dead. There is no possibility, uh, uh, there's no quasi-state. There's no, oh, it's acting up. It's acting up means that antimatter has now hit matter, and now you're an expanding ball of plasma being incinerated by annihilation. And I think on that note, we should. <laughs> Is that your mic drop moment? And not my mic drop, by any means. I'll leave. I'll use you for the closing remarks. Uh, well, I was just gonna say uh, th- this type of episode's fun for us. So you know, in heavy metal newsletters on Instagram, Facebook. If there's a specific film or show that is science related that you'd like us to dive deep into, let us know. We're going to start having episodes where we, you know, dissect an entire series and or movie in depth. And yeah, we're excited uh, to have this fun. And uh, yeah, John had a run in pee. He just texted us that. I don't even care. I'm letting you know because I know. And uh, we'll see you next week on Putting the Science Science Fiction. Thanks, guys. Bye.